Welcome to the New Models Podcast. Today in the studio, we are happy to have Joshua Citarella join us again. He's an artist and social theorist who for the last couple of years has been exploring how deep online spaces are evolving and how culture, especially youth culture, is changing in turn. Last fall when we spoke to Joshua, he had just published a long-form piece on Politogram and The Post Left. The text was not only an illuminating look at the particular way in which younger generations were engaging with Web2 social media, it became fuel for a cascade of sub-debates across the very platforms Joshua was analyzing. However, just as that essay, which focused on Instagram, was published, another platform, TikTok, was rapidly coming to the fore. In this episode, we speak to Joshua about his most recent research, which he published on New Models last month in a long-form essay called Irony Politics and Gen Z. I'm Lil Internet, joined by Caroline Busta and Daniel Keller. Let's get right to it. First of all, like, thank you so much. This text is amazing. It obviously took a ton of labor and time, and it's so cool that we were able to publish it in the context of New Model. So just thanks for that. Thank you for for hosting me. I guess it's a team effort, right? We've done all these talks that have been only seen in person and not recorded. So it's kind of, it's condensing a lot of what other people have said into one document. Do you want to just say, like, in in a word, give the context for this and, like, maybe the politogram piece and then what the thesis of this piece? I guess I would start by saying that the biggest uphill battle for the politogram and the post-left PDF was getting people to understand and believe the uh, age range for the people who are producing this content, right? So TikTok was really kind of tactically important to, to prove that point because it's kind of a clear evidence that the people producing the content are the ones in the video. When someone thinks of a troll, they kind of maybe conjure this image of someone living in their mom's basement. And, you know, who's to say what age range that is? But I'm, I'm kind of imagining that people think it's it's a 25-year-old, but it's in most cases a 15-year-old. Yeah, so I think TikTok is kind of like the, the, the first step in raising the, a, a general awareness of who these users are and and what some of their motivations are. So I tracked down this like really classic debate. This was like the golden age of politogram. I think that would help people to kind of really grasp the, the reality that these are you know pretty much like children <laughs> doing the right. work. And so right off, I wonder, so you, you emphasize that in both these cases, the user bases you're dealing with are really young. And for me, like one of the revelations of this text is that Although the troll that the quote quote troll may be 15, their intent isn't so much directed political action as it is just creating a signal that is audible. Here's an excerpt from a representative politogram exchange. This is from 2017 and was posted to YouTube as one of numerous such group video chat conversations. Other videos in the feed carry the titles Debating a Socialist, Debating a Liberal, Debating More Liberals, Debating a Social Justice Warrior, and so on. Do you know what mutualism is? Define mutualism. Mutualism, it's kind of hard. It's, it's like communism. You've got to kind of define it in stages. Um, people mutually agree on things. For example, voting, that's, that's the main thing I'm talking about here. That's not um, what mutualism is. Mutualism you cannot have, is, you cannot have organis- what? Mutualism is I know, it's a part of mutualism, though. What is? That, what I just said, you, it's like communism, you can't explain it in one sentence. Well, you can, but, like, it's really general. Oh, yeah, then explain it. Well, it doesn't, you can do it, it's not hard, I can explain it. Okay, well, one principle of mutual, I already got the mutual part. Um. They they're very individualist. They're 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 sort of capitalistic, but they're individualists in the part of capitalism. They they don't like the the non-individualists, the part where people people they like people working together, but they don't want corporations and large companies. It's kind of more of a leftist view on capitalism. It's not leftist, but it's just left for capitalism. Yeah, mutualism is just um anti-private property and hierarchies and pro-free market. 
Uh, I guess it's right next to syndicalism. Uh, oh! Said the age of consent should be ten. What's your opinion? On I that? never said that. I said that there you shouldn't did, be an age of consent. I said if you're old enough to consent, you should. Exactly. Be this is. We I, we agree perfectly on here. We agree perfectly. I never said there should be an age of consent on ten. Is this because you guys are young and you're just trying I, to? Like, no, it's not. Why does yeah. everyone? Think that? <laughs> And I wonder if you can discuss for a little bit like, the significance of this fact that the people that are producing this content are so young. And what does that mean about, yeah, about the intention of the gestures that they're making? Yeah, I guess it's, it's trying to lay a bit of a framework for the kind of external conditions that shape the Gen Z subjectivity that their idea of political dissent leans pretty heavily towards the right. And I guess this is, I think, as outlined in the piece, a, a confluence of the media landscape, which we, we know is uh, though it's 90% Democrat. The state, when they kind of came into their adult awareness, it was mostly during the era of Obama. So the kind of 2016 election cycle was the first time that they were really introduced to to politics on a, on a grand scale. And obviously there was, you know, this was kind of an unprecedented cultural event. And, and the third is that these things are taking place over social media and the people who own the platforms and moderate them pretty clearly lean towards the neoliberal center or, or left liberal center or are in some way aligned with the, the Democrats. So there's sound bites that you can take from that of yeah. uh, who Zuckerberg would throw his support behind or whatnot. But I think the more interesting thing is to look at the meetings during the Obama White House and to see, I mean, there's an article linked in the piece, but it's something like the single person that Obama met with most frequently outside of someone who held political office was Eric Schmidt. <laughs> and there's something, you know, like uh, 400 wow. plus meetings during his presidency with Google, uh, Google executives. Amazing. Wow. So the point here then is, and it's a point you make in your piece, is that for Gen Z, for a teenager who's just starting to form their adult awareness of the world, they essentially see the media, the entertainment industry, and the government as one consistent ruling class. It used to be that, say, entertainment or pop culture could be a space of resistance to, like, Reagan Thatcher or to H.W. Bush or even Bush too, right? But in this case, when you have a left liberal government and it's aligned with the media and entertainment— None of those traditional outlets are viable if you're fed up with the system. So the only signal of difference becomes a right-leaning signal. Is that is that more or less like the significance of that? Yeah, I think I think it puts them on this kind of slight incline towards the right from those kind of like three major factors. And then the second part of this is that once they've kind of realized that they are in some way downwardly mobile, they look to social media for answers. And the social media landscape has this really robust and kind of vast infrastructure of right-wing propaganda, right? So so uh, maybe like a historical precedent from a few years ago now would be Rush Limbaugh's positions were too extreme for mainstream television. So he, he went on the radio. And what we have now is the people who are too extreme for television or on YouTube. <laughs> and that's kind of combined with algorithms oriented towards profit motive and incentivizing increased uh, activity and engagement on the platforms lead them down this rabbit hole of what was described by Data and Society as the alternative influencer network. And it provides them with seemingly reasonable answers from their position. I think maybe an important footnote for this would be a video from a couple weeks ago by a young man, Faraday Speaks, who kind of articulates what he calls a, a funnel, which is a vast reaching uh, <laughs> propaganda network. And he went down it and then he probably lasted about like five years and until his descent into the bottom and then came out the other side. Here is an excerpt from the March 21st, 2019 video posted by Faraday Speaks to YouTube titled My Descent into the Alt-Right Pipeline. It had been like late 2013, early 2014. And then that self-help stuff quickly escalated to me finding Stefan, Stefan Molyneux. And I Stefan resonated with me in a lot of ways. He had a similar childhood. I was just really impressed with Stefan and I wanted to be successful like he was. And I wanted to be, he said that he was healthy and put together and happy. And I wanted that too. And so I started listening to his advice, but I didn't realize that that vice wasn't free and I didn't know what was happening. And slowly 
I found myself becoming a libertarian as before. I was just like, I thought of myself as a liberal um, in high school. I didn't really understand what that meant, but I found myself becoming a libertarian, then an ANCAP. And then he like started putting a lot of social commentary into my head, stuff about women, stuff about other races, stuff about IQ, mostly the IQ stuff and the immigration stuff. Yeah. And then from there, I kind of just moved further down the funnel because he would have guests on his show. The algorithm kicked in. I started listening to Ben Shapiro, Crowder. So now we're getting into like 2015. And then 2016 kicks up, the Trump election. I'm starting to drift further and further to the right. Pretty soon, Lauren Southern and Steve Bannon come on the scene in a big way. I become a civic nationalist. Like I said in my video, I thought the conservatives weren't doing enough to fix the problem. A Marxist plot to take over the country and a cultural Marxism. And I wasn't getting any content to the contrary. And when I would interact with liberals out in the world or on Facebook or something, they would just like get real emotional and flip out on me and stuff. So I thought, wow, what they're saying is true. The liberals are crazy. And so I was chasing this like trad con lifestyle and it was making me miserable. And I didn't realize it was making me miserable because I was forcing myself to believe this, right? I'm an atheist, but I was like crying out to God and like just so angry. Like I did everything that I was supposed to do and now my life's falling apart. And so after that, I had to come back home my grandfather's and i was just it was the ultimate defeat i was like dude it happened again like the same thing that happened you know years ago when i was trying to find a way in life and i was just so defeated and then i just kept watching contrapoints because it was the only thing i could go to it was the only like i kind of liked her you know she made me feel comfortable and i wanted to learn more about what she was saying and this iron (laughs) curtain on youtube peeled back and it was like all these wonderful content creators i didn't feel attacked So this is something that I think a lot of people in our art, tech, whatever you might call it, community have been hypothesizing. And we're just starting to see these real world examples kind of come up to the surface. Maybe we would caveat this with there's a lot of, you know, as there are with anything on the internet, conspiracy theories surrounding whether Faraday is a troll or if it's some kind of op or whatnot. I've, I've clocked a good six hours of watching this kid speak right now to try and investigate this thing. I'm inclined to believe him. I read the um, this Hannah... Hannah Arendt, the the origins of totalitarianism book, and she's just like you know the the origin is always like kind of like loneliness yeah. and alienation. I mean, it reminds me. I I had two examples of people I know who one of them got hooked on Milo to the point where he was working for him, and the other <laughs> wow. one just was um, a gay Hispanic DJ, and he just went full MAGA crazy for some reason or another. I think he also had kind of like a thing for like conservative, like muscle gaze, <laughs> which is a thing, I guess. But anyways, I think over about two years, they spiraled into just becoming more and more toxic, lost all their friends, got totally alienated. And then they came out all of a sudden after just years of them, like with this really horrible trolling, being really nasty, even to people who were like, I'm worried about you. All of a sudden it was like this switch flipped and they wrote these really eloquent like apology emails and they they would explain it as being brainwashed. Mm. Like that was the only way they could think how to explain this process they went through is they were like I got trapped in this spiral and everything kept feeding into it and I feel like I lost like I was brainwashed for three years mm-hmm. and lost total sight of reality and who I am as a person I mean it is interesting for people who kind of uh come out of the other end are there any other examples of reform or something or or anything that illuminates that experience of going in one end and then coming out the other and sort of changing I guess it's complicated, right? One thing to kind of lead with is, and, and this sounds absolutely insane, but one of the, the questions that was uh, sent to us was, is TikTok only used by white middle-class American teens? Are POC not middle-class users all about this crusader stuff? And I think there's something baked in here about the, the way that the internet kind of deals with culture. Uh, Jesus. I'm trying to think of how to say this other than fascism is trending. I mean, it's pretty self-evident that fascism is trending. We can talk, we can't we're talking even about talk about it. No, we can, we can talk <laughs> yeah. about 
why it is. That's for well, sure. That's useful. I was really active on 4chan during the Occupy era, say, in the early days of 4chan, where you would still have a lot of sort of LARPing as fascist or racist because it was the most extreme attention economy environment you could possibly conceive, which is probably in a way how TikTok operates. Really short form content and everyone is just trying to create something that gets pushed to the top of the feed or that other people will see. So of course, I mean, the things with these really negative sign values that still get attention are going to be valuable on there and at least when you know and when i was on 4chan there's still like tons of terrible stuff on it but at the end of the day their politics were leftist at that time and anonymous generally took on leftist anti-violent anti-war causes so i wonder if it's in a way similar to that era of 4chan where they're larping with these kind of fascists and these these symbols that have terrible meaning behind them but their politics isn't baked in yet i mean i think it's also it's like a bit of victim of the cultural left success that the intellectual dark web, whatever, is this alternative. Well, if you were from ages eight, which is when you start paying attention anyways, to 16 was Obama's years. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, to them, they feel like the world has probably already always been this way with all of this progress uh, and the results aren't great right and then they which is kind of the basic setup i think josh was talking about well it's just yeah it was the hollowness of all those of that rhetoric was very much exposed because nothing changed from 2008 to 2016 or i would i wouldn't i wouldn't use the word hollowness i would actually just use like the ineffectiveness i mean i do i do believe that a lot of people involved in the left project of the audis were well-meaning and did believe that they the hope was like real hope they did believe that they I think they also did believe in like, you know, the internet being the thing that will bring tolerance. But I think the force of capitalism and the complexity of the world were like, you know, it was no match for that. Sure. And at the, and for somebody who, right, who spent eight to 16 under Obama, they just see it as failed, prog- as, a, as, a, as a failed position. Uh, yeah. And also just like that there is like a clearly a growing consensus against capitalism and they have their own anti-capitalist, you know, it's not coherent necessarily, but it's a, you you know, there's just and it, that on ramp is there much more readily than than a left alternative of that is. So I don't know. I just think like yeah, I don't know, Josh. If you had an idea of how you better wanted to say what you were going to say, <laughs> yeah, maybe we or, can just give you a pause um, for a second. If early four chan is a good analogy, I'm not sure if you were uh, spend any time there back in its uh, more wholesome years. If you could say that. Yeah, I mean, well, that that's kind of the oddity, right? It's that they're advocating for hyper-capitalism, but they're producing these things which are distributed for free. How does that, like, mass leaderless movement become part of right-wing extremism, right? That's, that's a contradiction right. there. And I think there's maybe a similar thing on TikTok where the, the network infrastructure or, or the platform architecture, I'm not sure what you might call it, it seems to be pretty collectivist-leaning rather than right-leaning. So to see that kind of dissent is just further evidence of some kind of contradiction in place. Yeah, that's super interesting. Collectivist leaning as opposed to right leaning. Do you want to unpack that for a second? What you think that then suggests? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm thinking of the, the kind of towards the end of the text talking about the California ideology. Had the, the engineers of Silicon Valley, many of them came out of the countercultural movements of the 60s and 70s, right? And so there was this kind of idea of like a, a Randian uh, libertarianism, used with the the commune projects where uh, through the kind of like ecological harmony or self-organizing network that you could create a society that didn't require uh, a state to negotiate the distribution of, of resources that it, it could just through the through the intrinsic properties of the network you could achieve harmony uh, in the society system. and that creates this weird situation where everyone is kind of on Facebook or on Instagram, maybe Twitter to a degree, is in competition with each other as like uh, some kind of creative director, uh, where they're they're selling their taste level as as their service. And the the duet chain and uh, what what Sean Monahan referred to as uh, post selfie culture, where a lot of these TikTok users will, similar to cosplay, disguise themselves or hide their identity. This looks like a very different culture than, than what's present on other platforms. And I think that's why it's resonating with them, because Gen Z is kind of aware that they're downwardly mobile. I think millennials knew that also, but we have 
had working in our advantage, we could be the early adopters of social media. And a lot of people built careers off of that. But uh, us as artists, we can probably attest to this as well as anyone that, that trying to be a creative director and some kind of soft influencer on social media is often not very lucrative. And a lot of us are, you know, living month to month and suffering for it. And so as that kind of hollowing out or as it just became obvious, like snake oil, a bill of goods and something I see the fire festival as kind of being like the nail in the coffin for the, the hopes of becoming an influencer. It was just, it was just, just became so clear that there was nothing backing it that people kind of lost hope in, in that idea that they, they were no longer interesting in competing with each other. Yeah, it seemed like, you know, why would you even get into a race that there was no chance of winning? And they kind of went back to these things of cooperation and, and feeling that interpersonal connection and just being part of the duet chain, be, being part of a collectivity is actually is a really wonderful feeling. <laughs> I just look when the question about is it are there people other than middle class white people using it? Isn't the bulk of the user base in Asia? And I mean, I think like it has to be mentioned that it's a Chinese app, which of course, like, the collectivity right. seems baked into the fact that it's so popular there. And of course, like culturally China, it's all about the challenges or mass dances and these kind of things like that's been trendy for a while in a viral way. So like, I mean, I see it as, yeah, like kind of one of the first waves of, a, you know, kind of like Chinese culture penetrating the West. But I don't know if that's so clear cut. I would not. totally agree with that. There, there's something in the, the history of the societies that built these apps, right? Like if we look at Facebook and Instagram, we inevitably go, go back to the California ideology and uh, kind of implicit like American libertarian values. And TikTok doesn't feel that way. I mean, I guess, right, some of the, uh, I guess the more fascist adjacent images they use is just for attention. And and because that's the way to rebel the against the kind of homogenous progressive culture they were raised in. But I also wonder if maybe when you're you're 13 or 14, the right just speaks in a language that's easier to understand and also offers them like a tangible dream of like some trad utopia. Whereas the left at this point, like what can you promise a 14 year old who's like a white heterosexual person? And the professionalized yeah. <laughs> aesthetics of the left too, like everything being like clean and, and like Obama coherent, as opposed to this incoherency that one has as a teenager, something that feels more DIY or accessible. But I also wonder where, where does global warming sit with these kids? Yeah, that seems like, a, I mean, like, that's the, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the, that's the big thing. So it's like, the, that's, I think the bookend of this like end of historical thinking, right? Because you're up against a very real existential crisis. So, I mean, I, like imagine what it feels like to be born after the end of the world. <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it. You know, if there's going to be, I, I think that the general kind of boilerplate nonsense that we're taught as young American high school students is that after the civil rights movement, like society's problems were solved and that uh, America was just a, like we had exhausted all possibilities that we'd gone through communism and socialism and none of those things worked and there's this vast consensus that capitalism was the the only logical way forward the kind of like thatcher like there are there are no alternatives and then you're being taught that while at the same time pretty much everyone in the world except the people in power agree that we're facing a catastrophic cataclysmic extinction event and that will radicalize your politics like nothing else right but then i mean how do you reconcile the threat of global warming with you know, a lot of conservative American politics that don't <laughs> believe it exists. That's a good question. But I think that's generational. That's at least is my it generational? I mean, that yeah. Climate that, denial, I think is, but, but I don't I mean, know. In terms of, yeah, do, do, in your research, I mean, and to what degree can you actually tell regionalism? Like, obviously, there's some cues mm. in the domestic settings, which is a really interesting aspect of TikTok anyway. Yeah. But, um, but can you, but yeah, how do you reconcile the fact that most of middle America is still in this quasi- climate denial state, whereas obviously that's radicalizing a lot of younger people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think my suspicion is that the rightward drift in Gen Z was something that was kind of conveniently passing through the 2016 election. And them being in favor of Trump was kind of a, a product of the culture war. But this has gotten a lot darker and a lot less funny. I don't know if we want to talk about this, but I mean, it's it's obviously eco-fascism, right? Well, yeah. Like there's there's no way that the Koch brother agenda is in line with the rightward 
drift of these kids. Yeah, because they're right? interested like, in like a new kind of traditionalism and like a back to this kind of values. Koch brothers are about like, deterritorializing the rest of the world, yeah. and you know, I mean, I yeah, that's I think that's the, the, one of the biggest trends right now is very clear. And also the question of like people are, people think with like climate denialists, like in a few years, you know, they'll be eating crow because they'll see all the seas are rising. But no, they'll all become eco-fascist too because that is like you know those are that's the simple. So simple answer to an in- incredibly complex question. Can you, can we just, just so we don't get into like word soup, can you just for a second define what you understand ecofascism to mean? They believe that climate change is real and that will necessitate the very, very harsh divisions of resources. And because they believe in race and believe that there's a certain race that deserves to have those resources that because of climate change necessitates, you know, a genocide that's mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and a genocide. Yeah. And I think there is probably eco-fascists that are not so racialist, but it's like that's the most convenient way of sorting people, obviously. Or so identitarian think, in some way. Right, exactly. Right. So I probably there is definitely more just like, I think, a general death cult that are like semi-ironic pro-nuclear holocaust. But there's also like, I've, I was looking into some research, there's the Atomwaffen. There is like a, definitely like nuclear death cult, neo-Nazi stuff. I think at the bottom of this rabbit hole is pretty clearly a, a death cult of lone wolf terror, right? And this, the literature was written in the 80s when the, the CIA, FBI, the, the state had already successfully infiltrated most of these movements, and they couldn't really organize the extent that they wanted to. So the only viable strategy became decentralized terrorist sleeper cell networks, right? I totally agree with uh, Dan's definition. I, th- I think that's that's what it is. The process of global capitalism is so large and diffuse that it's hard to get angry at an abstraction, right? So the scapegoat narrative or something like race becomes a very convenient narrative for people to focus their frustrations on. Right. The core of New Models is our aggregator found at newmodels.io. We encourage tips and submissions from our readers and listeners, so slide in our DMs or write us an email at desk at newmodels.io. We also have a Patreon community with a Discord for discussion with members and a subscriber-only conversational podcast. Join at patreon.com slash newmodels. We haven't talked about Yang at all. And one thing I just noticed oh, actually yeah. yesterday was that the Pepe Dank meme stash oh, is, uh, I noticed that it was officially a Yang Dank meme stash now. And like, that seems like a pretty Whoa. clear off-road there that it's happening there. And the fact that so many of those people can kind of like, even if it's semi-ironically, who knows, support yeah, an Asian guy who is a Democrat in his own whatever bizarre whatever way, that shows like there's some kind of easy way you can just bribe gen z's by promising them some type of monetary you know improvement in their life or material improvement in their life i don't i don't think yang gang memes are made by gen z yet i've been in the discord servers where they're organizing and making these things and from what i've pieced together it's a targeted campaign towards gen z towards bernie supporters towards tulsi supporters that they're they're trying to to force the meme and there there's one that was like a a bunch of young pepes jumping on a bed with the pink vaporwave hat that they're uh they're trying to give the outward appearance that this is like a kind of like youth kind of frenetic energy like fun cultural movement but there's like a pretty long history with this that it starts in november where richard spencer first tweeted about yang yang has been kind of signaling seemingly intentionally all of these like right-wing talking points from youtube the group that is behind the yang gang memes like if you trace it back to the origin of those threads on poll it's the portion of the alt-right that became politicized in the arc of 2016 so the, the way that they describe it is that they're they're thinking like a minority group and so his you know, nonsense about white genocide really resonates with them. I don't, I don't think, think I knew his I, white genocide wait, talking points. What? Genocide? I, I missed that one. Yeah, uh, there was a there's a tweet where he said um, something to the effect that in many you know majority white states there are more people dying than being born. This was uh, a few months ago. Now it's I mean the Rogan podcast, the Ben Shapiro show, like it's. Uh, Oh, it's hard to mistake what's going he on. He went on here. Rogan and Ben Shapiro, so he's just like run. He's like running for a Democrat by campaigning on like <laughs> right wing. Well, the, I mean, the the thing about his UBI plan is that like if you're already on benefits, that's deducted from yeah. your UBI. Right. So it's like really clear that this 
you know, oh, of course. disproportionately like root, affects yeah. you know people who receive existing benefits, which in America are you know black or brown, and he's he's giving a uh, a bribe against class consciousness to white people. I, I think his plan is pretty explicit, and I I don't think there's irony. I think we're we're identifying the kind of like silly energy that was in the early memes, but the people who are behind this are like you know before the server went behind the the verification wall, I did, I grabbed a few choice screenshots of like they're they're really tactical about it, and they know they know what they're doing. I mean, it did seem. Astroturfed, but then I was just sort of surprised that the Facebook group had changed identity. But I guess that even re- reinforces what you're saying about it being kind of coordinated. And but it also says that it says that somebody could run on on a similar platform that isn't the, like the bad version of UBI, for instance, and it would still have a similar appeal because, like, obviously, it's getting at rectifying you know one of the major problems, which is are deteriorating, you know, deteriorating material reality, whatever. Speaking of material reality, I mean, that's a point you make early in your piece. And you say you give this evidence kind of like what we've just walked through here. And then you say all of this makes perfectly clear that we need a materialist left. Do you want to say anything about what that means to you or what you imagine that to, to, to look like? For me, that means a left that addresses the downwardly mobile conditions of, of most people in the U.S. and across pretty much all of the developed world right now, that you would decommodify the, the major expenses of healthcare and housing and so on. And looking at the real conditions as opposed to a more utopic idea that you see in Silicon Valley, looking empirically and like maybe a DSA AOC way of like, okay, what is the income bracket of most Gen Z and millennials? What are their expenses? Like looking at hard facts. I'm pretty much aligned with the D, uh, DSA AOC okay, yeah. agenda. Yeah. yeah, I just worry that, to be honest, like that agenda, it's nowhere near radical enough, one, to address climate change in any meaningful way, but also is not radical enough to deal with the emotional effects of those things that are going to happen. And it just seems like the left actually is pretty woefully unprepared to really like absorb that into the Overton window in the right way. I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen any evidence of it. Basically, what, I'm, what, I, what I hear you saying is the Green New Deal, DSA's plan, it's like a good way of moving the left forward in a short scope, but in a longer scope that it's going to be, it's like putting a Band-Aid on like a, heart, yeah, like a, and- a body wound and that you're working worried that the downstream effects of this will be only reproducing what the Obama situation was pre-Trump. Exactly, exactly. but even worse. But even, but even worse. Yeah. I mean, Josh, in your research, would you say that's like that sort of tracks or what's your feeling? It's important to acknowledge that climate change is unanimously agreed upon across all portions of the political spectrum for Gen Z, right, left, top, down, center, who, you name it. They all, they all agree it's real. That's an important distinction from previous generations. What percentage is right and left? It's really hard to tell. And I think that the phase that we're looking at here is maybe has not yet rippled out across like the, the broad, broad stream. So I think I kind of see these the kids on Politogram as being agenda setters for their generation. And maybe TikTok is one further orbit out that they're still kind of like early into it. And um, they're expressing that that dissatisfaction. Yeah, but I had I guess I, I had something to maybe like uh, a hypothetical for the kind of um, catastrophe situation that, that Dan was proposing of like, what if in the next, say, two years from now, we have a Bernie Sanders presidency and Jeremy Corbyn is the prime minister and the New Deal is passed and every first world nation has signed on to the agenda of the progressive international. Like, what if that happened? Like, how would we as kind of climate nihilists feel having like sat out of the fight? Yeah. Right? Like, I, <laughs> Good point. Right. Good point. Like, it, I mean, because I, I don't think those are completely outside of the realm of possibility. Like, it, like if all that happened, is it still not enough? Yeah, no, it's not. I mean, that's, that's, that's the reality, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it's the, that's like absolutely extremely best case scenario that you can propose other than, I don't know, some spontaneous mass revolution. I mean, I just think that like short of absolutely restructuring the economy, it's, it, that's just, it's, it's really clear what's so going to happen. You're saying that the messaging should already be moving to a space of relinquishment yeah, and well, adaptation as opposed to right. anything that's like an intermediary. I measure. think we need to get back on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was, there's a question asking to expand more 
on deplatforming, and this person was kind of completely against deplatforming. So maybe just a, a few words on that idea. For some of these early users, deplatforming them is really useful because it depoliticizes them. And kids who are posting edgy content that was offensive and seen by people out of context or, or whatnot, they realize that it's not worth posting this content because then they can't be on social media and they lose contact with their friends or something like that. The, the other side of it is that if you deplatform people like uh, Alex Jones or, or whatnot, like the, the quantitative numbers are, are really clear that this stuff becomes harder to access. So that is maybe like a net positive if you're trying to shut down a specific channel. The risk for blowback on this is really, really difficult to predict because there are some users outlined in the specific group that I studied in the um, Politogram in the Post Left text that once they were deplatformed, they moved to Discord and they just marinating in their own ideas radicalized much further and much faster. But the kind of contextual clues required for telling if deplatforming will benefit or negatively affect the account are so fine-grained that there's not a universal policy that we can use for these things. So I guess the other thing that's important to mention is that there's there are some people who will just endlessly harass people online and, you know, like that can't be said for, right? I'm not by any means a free speech absolutist, and this isn't really like a thing that I, I talk about, but the, the one thing that I do worry about way down the line is that the left movement that I would like to see would be redistributing the, what is it, $1.9 trillion of wealth that Silicon Valley companies are, are holding on to right now. That's that's going to be essential at some point, and whether that's 10 years down the road or 15 years or, or who knows, if we make it that far, I guess, maybe as a parenthesis to add on there. But we, we are setting some kind of precedent now. The, the kind of thing that, that envelopes this whole conversation is that deplatforming is not a solution in itself because the desire for this material is political in nature. It's not the, the individual actions of uh, a few bad people on social media, right? That, that's really important. And there's kind of one famous historical example of in the 1920s, the British Communist Party lobbied parliament to pass what were essentially hate speech laws to prevent fascist groups from congregating in public. And in the 1930s, those same laws were used to dismantle the British Communist Party and put those same people in prison. Exactly. Right. right. So uh, right. that's, I mean, there, there's many, many examples of this, of how like the, the state uh, disproportionately targets left movements and undermines them and, and lets the kind of like right-wing extremists flourish. But uh, while we have this private monopoly of social media platforms, like that is that is way downstream in the political agenda compared to something like uh, a Medicare for all, right? So we're going to have to do this political struggle on the platforms that we have. And while we're doing that, let's just kind of keep an eye in the, the 10 year or whatever timeline it is before these platforms are, you know, I guess my, my personal uh, inclination would be nationalization. Other people, you know, say it would be better to dismantle the big ones, you know, force competition, regulate them, whatever. Yeah, but that's that's a way downstream conversation, right? Because I think we're going to have to do, obviously, the next election, we're still going to have to do it on Facebook and, and whatnot. But pe people on the right are proposing that, too. Like, Tucker Carlson is talking about dismantling the stacks. I, so I just think, again, like, this same sentiment can so easily be be harnessed by the right. I don't think it's extremist or absolutist to be like generally you got to protect free speech for that very reason because you don't because you don't know when it's going to be your speech that's threatened, you know, in the future. I don't I think that's just like okay, that's, you know, mutually assured destruction or it's the same reason why you have a, you know, you don't get rid of the filibuster. I don't think it's at all a good precedent to let private companies that are total monopolies dictate what is allowed to be said in the public arena or not. Wait, I have, yeah. I have, a, I have a related question about deplatforming, though. Um, is there any analogy that you've seen, say, in these TikTok uh, kind of conservative communities to the the sort of intra intra left policing and deplatforming that we see a lot on? Twitter, where, you know, there's a lot of like left on left deplatforming and cancellation. Does that still exist in, in, on TikTok, even within conservative groups? Or is there more is it more unified, do you think? 
Huh, yeah, that's that's funny. There's not the same kind of like purity purging that exists on the the left. I guess one of the, the like major criticisms of left organizations is that they try to engage in these like prefigurative politics where everything is completely horizontal and there's no one in a, a disproportionate position of power. And in doing that, they get caught up with critiquing themselves and being inward facing rather than being outward facing. I guess what we saw was in the kind of indeterminacy of what Trump's real ideology was and this kind of confusion about what alt-right was 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 it someone like Dave Rubin or was it someone like Richard Spencer or you know was it this libertarian thing or was it this you know ethno-nationalist thing they they had a convenient point of of calibration right it's like they they could recoil back from the point of of Hillary Clinton and just be in this broad coalition that was ill-defined I don't know I don't I, I think that that's going to happen pretty soon and you're kind of seeing it splinter naturally it's not a product of the people in internally policing you know whether someone falls in the, the perfect kind of ideological bounds of, of their specific uh movement or whatnot but the uh the, the clown world the honk guys like the the pepe with the the rainbow clown wig the yang gang the doomers the the black pilled guys um and a whole bunch of other fractured movements that are they're not worth mentioning by name they're they're kind of naturally separating from their disillusionment with what they thought Trump could be. It's like a reverse Obama effect, like the hope hope and change is, or whatever the inversion of that was. I also saw like Ann Coulter suggesting that that be like, like Democrats should run on Trump breaking all of his promises. And like, yeah, that does seem like a, there's, an, there's an in there. It's just that no one want like, people are generally happy that he broke those promises. So it's hard to use that as a talking point, but... Well, I think she's she's saying that because she knows we'll get some like neoliberal centrist piece of shit who's just like anti-Trump rather than proposing like a really radical agenda. Right, right. Right. That's that's definitely working in her favor. So we have a couple of questions that relate to Gen Z and the public school system. Do you have any thoughts on how the public school's reaction is creating some kind of recursive loop, amplifying the power of these memes? I mean, I guess this is there's this other question that we got via Twitter saying, I teach ninth grade art class with several boys who seem to be on that edgy PewDiePie pipeline. They somewhat know that I am not with that, but I've avoided coming down hard on them for fear that they would entren- that this would entrench them in it. Any suggestions for a millennial teacher who has a tough time acting as an authority figure anyway? Yeah, they need to watch Destiny. That's the guy who's doing it. I guess the, the proposal in the piece is that, you know, given the, the, the current problem with social media, her best tactic right now is to build the kind of left version of this alternative influencer network. And Destiny is the guy that uh, Faraday gives most of the credit to for getting him out of the rabbit hole. So generally, it's it's a bad idea for institutions or people from the left to engage in debate with these far-right figures because you acknowledge that their ideas are, are worthy of addressing or, or something like that. You, you unintentionally signal boost what they're recruiting for. But in these down towards the bottom of the funnel, there's really just a complete echo chamber and there's, no, there, there's not many exit ramps for them. So these guys that that do debate those figures and just brutally embarrass them and are really skillful debaters, they do offer a kind of like an algorithm pipeline out of that funnel. So I wouldn't suggest that someone who's like just on the edge of this thing go and watch a Destiny video or like a Hassan video. But I think for those people, you know, young men who have been in this for a few years now, that stuff is actually really helpful because they skilled debaters and they pick apart the uh, poor like data that they're trying to use as evidence for their agenda. I think the question about these kids being in school of like if they're in this mass social media space and there's like essentially no edges to the Overton window and there's no consensus on what is actual history and and what is conspiracy. I've seen a few updates of like someone on Politogram like I just got kicked out of history class because I said XYZ happened and it you know the teacher says it happened this way. I'm expecting to see that kind of a lot. I mean and the thing the thing is that they're not completely wrong too. Right. Like we are taught a kind of whitewashed neoliberal centrist version of history that really minimizes the violent struggles through which all of these civil liberties were achieved. Right. right? 
I had one question with regards to that. I mean, it seems like also in your piece you mentioned Sean and ContraPoints, who, I mean, I think ContraPoints is absolutely brilliant. I mean, is there a model, though, that the left can use, say, via ContraPoints or what Sean or what Destiny is doing, that people can use and make more content like this? I mean, I wonder why you would suggest not to engage generally it just seems contradictory yeah yeah it almost makes you seem like you're saying leave it to the experts but no all of this is pretty organic well is that true i mean contrapoints and sean how did they get their start like they just sort of self they sort of like were good rhetoricians like diy and just started a youtube channel right right well well they're they're kind of they're debunk videos right so they're like the second level into it like in this maybe if we can try to put it into this flow chart uh if that's useful of like the, the Gen Z moment where they um, kind of identify their generational grievance or, you know, things are generally getting worse. And then they look to social media and get introduced to this vast, you know, right-wing propaganda machine. And these content producers who make the debunk videos are an exit ramp from that funnel, right? But what I'm suggesting is that we could have in place a really big uh, left propaganda network and we wouldn't need to be trying right. to siphon them off from the right wing guys. What would that look like in your mind? I mean, you spend a lot of time in these spaces, you know, the aesthetics, the language, like what would that look like in broad strokes if there were to be like a left coordinated left like front within this zone? Uh, maybe zero books is like a, a, an example of this because they do a lot less debunking and they do kind of just like equipping you with the like the, the Marxist tools to understand the world around you. And maybe, maybe worth mentioning is that part of Paul Joseph Watson lifting my argument for his video, he's done very recently in the process of writing this piece, I want to say it was maybe a week or two weeks ago, lifted the Mark Fisher argument for slow cancellation of the future and put it into his video titled something like, Has Our Society Ceased to Produce the New? or something like that. I mean, then again, there's huge contingents of the left who are kind of anti-zero books, anti-Zizek. And I think Black Socialists of America are doing an excellent job of this, of it is a bit more going towards a materialist view of, of the left that can include people in a, on a wider scale and include uneducated people, which I think is really Embracing important. people who don't have master's degrees or right, yes, who don't have paywall, JSTOR I, I think access. a lot of the more radical types uh, within the left, the current, especially online left space, are really have no clue how to talk to or reach the working class. Yeah, I, I think the the strategy in the kind of like post 60s, 70s US, the march through the institution was to kind of like keep the flame alive for when the time was right, when we, we were in revolutionary times, when there was like a, a chance to put these things into practical use. And I'm saying that this is the time. Right, uh, right, right. So because the, the kind of the bookend of climate change is we've either got to do it now or we're facing certain extinction. Right. So the right kind of has, has been flourishing in these social media spaces, but the, the left didn't do that for, for whatever reason. We've kind of we, we've we've laid a few of the, the breadcrumbs for that, how that played out. But uh, it's time to move it out of the institution and it's time to to reach people on uh, on a material level, you know, propose things that target their own individual self-interest. I think that we've kind of we've really lost like this definition of what solidarity means. And it's kind of become dissolved into this kind of like liberal moralizing that something is unfair and you want you want to see justice done but that's not that's not the real coalition that that I see as having a radical political effect right you have to target people on the level of their own individual self-interest and they realize their individual self-interest is aligned with a collectivity and then they experience solidarity but i think this is an inherent thing that if we're trying to make it a messaging that is appealing to people's self-interest that's gonna be that's a we're gonna break promises that's the issue i don't think that's like i mean on the other side of this though you have a left that like that that thinks zero books is the enemy i mean and you know so you already have a left that can't even find consensus on principles that would be seemingly leftist i mean to get to that point josh do you have any thoughts on like why there has been resistance within the left towards zero books and what is objectionable about that yeah i guess the uh the vampire castle kind of like haunts the the legacy of, of zero books but i think in in this context that's kind of that's kind of the thing that has made it effective for these disenfranchised young white men is that you know it doesn't it doesn't Tit from their perspective, point the blame at them. It points the blame at capital. You know, there's maybe parts of the left that really don't like exiting the vampire castle, but I could imagine if 
you give that to somebody who's coming out the other end of the funnel and be like, hey, there's people on the left who believe this. They'd feel a lot more, ex- it'd feel a lot more accessible to right. them to get into these ideas. Sure. Well, so yeah, pick your battles. And obviously, yeah, capitalism is the biggest existential threat. I think threat. that's a good battle, yeah, it is. It's right. not the other things necessarily. I mean, right. Will there or won't there be nuclear bombs that go off? Who knows? But there's definitely capital. It's still here. It's doing a ton of damage. It's setting off micro-nuclear bombs on a daily basis. One, one thing that I, I worry about also is just that the rhetoric on the right, especially, let's say, with eco-fascists, is like they are not promising a better material future. They are kind of providing some way of like coping and like in, 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 in change win. Of, well yeah, but also like in, in exchange for like individualism and comfort there, there's like family and tradition and values and like you know and perseverance and being tough and like not being and community in that but yeah but also like not being comfortable okay so there's also a professor at columbia who said that she's been doing work in this space as well and uh she's grateful that someone's uh shining a much needed spotlight on the meaningful politic political expression happening on this understudy platform she's curious what your methods uh have been when you say that you've been researching this field for several years i think maybe there's some Something to be gained by your like format of research and maybe you can elaborate on that yeah yeah that's a good question i highlighted that one also i think the the idea would be that if you're trying to do this on a purely quantitative level then it's already going to be too late by the time it's broadcast at a mass scale the level of research that i engage with is like a kind of deep, deep and time-intensive engagement with these communities and following them for years, isolating specific content producers and agenda setters, people who kind of act like a, uh, a lighthouse in, in their community, right? And as they shift, their audience shifts with them. So I guess the biggest uh, explanation would be, would be lurking, but lurking in uh, kind of following their trail of breadcrumbs and, and being in their uh, community. They, they did also ask about potential solutions to the toxicity. I guess I think that would fall under the strategy of building the kind of like left alternative influencer network, you know, addressing people's grievances and proposing materialist solutions. I was, I was um, perusing the, the last portion of that question. Uh, it ends, I'm a researcher and I recently published an article on youth political expression on TikTok comparing liberal and conservative groups. And I think that's part of the issue is that we're kind of approaching it with these goggles of our like existing political spectrum. And that's, you know, exactly what Gen Z is, is broadening because you can't easily put them into Republican and Democrat categories. Also, the use of, of hashtags, I, I guess, again, the quantitative aspect, by the time it gets to that, it's uh, it's too late. If we had, if we look at the Google Analytics for some of these things, like, you really have to cut it off pretty far upstream for it to be effective. And then once it's reached, like, a mass scale of, like, hashtags in the millions, then you can only really counter message at that point. They're too far down the funnel. They need an exit ramp. They We can't capture them from, like, the broad net of another funnel. And I imagine once hashtags become super mainstream, the most like potent actors have already calved off from that mainstream. And so I imagine that that's another problem with the timescale that, yeah, a smaller hashtag is actually like maybe a more potent conversation than one that already has millions of hits. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I would agree. I guess it's just, um, it's, it's not usually in the hashtag because to evade detection by content moderation, they've kind of stopped geotagging or hashtagging right. or, uh, you know, like tagging their friends and images. They, they try to stay under the, the radar and then. You know, they plant the seeds that get blown up later. So in the title of your piece is, you know, Irony, Politics, and Gen Z. And in your piece, you talk about irony in the context of millennials and in the context of current teenagers. But of course, irony, like, stretches back further. Like, Gen X was famously ironic. I mean, can you talk about the quality difference in irony as it's been known up until, like, Web 2 or, like, millennials and after? Yeah, I, I definitely think that's an important part. I kind of chose not to include it in the essay because I couldn't speak to lived experience of the, the Gen X form of irony because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like right on the, uh, the the millennial edge. But I guess that my general inclination is that 
as our expectations decline, the amount of irony increases, right? You could plot it uh, in like a dynamic equilibrium. I mean, of course, I guess in the 90s, there was also a lot of dissatisfaction and the feeling of, okay, the wall is down and now what? But I guess media was also different then. And I mean, it's another conversation. At some point, I would love to talk about how music relates. Oh, I, did, I, I think that's super important. Dean Kissick and Aria Dean talked about this on the on the Rhizome podcast. But there's there's something to be said about, in some way, this is like how the internet deals with culture, the head and the long tail, right? And so kind of on the early like Tumblr era, we, we would like take a word and then we put like wave or core or punk after it yeah. and kind of invent an IRL movement that didn't, or a URL movement that didn't yet have an IRL following. And there's something similar happening to ideology online where people take a term and then they put ism after it. You know, this is, it seems to fall under that same rubric of, uh, increasing options for consumer identity. Well, politics is also the place where you say fuck you. It's not music anymore. Right. Okay, let's see. Other questions. One from Nick Cosmos. What left is being called on to reflect? Political parties don't reflect the folks, especially not young ones, when debated issues relate to actual economic or let alone foreign policy beyond rhetoric. Bit garble sentence there, but maybe you get me. Right. It, it doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess that's the, that's the thing. We're like, maybe it's a long shot hope uh, that it's not too late. We need to start it now. Have a, a dues paying party, have like a real left I'm I'm empathetic to to his interpretation, but I mean it's also it's like you know the way that the Democratic Party is is looking now. I don't know. I'm 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 an optimist for despite all of this of like kind of wallowing in like the darkest content of the internet and the most nihilistic communities. I've kind of come out on the other side now, and I think that there's going to be a major tide change in the like you know the meme arc or the like the the internet activity leading up to 2020. I think we're going to be very surprised by what happens. Uh huh. I mean, I think we're going to be surprised no matter what happens. Sure. I mean, it sounds to me, Josh, like you're also saying. I mean, something that Z from Black Socialism America said, which is that you know you understand people who say, oh, it's labor to educate people, but like we're facing kind of an existential crisis, and the kind of like Venmo me left needs to kind of suck it up and start engaging making more content and actually educating people yeah. yeah he he said it really well it was something like uh it's not fair but it's required right right, right. yeah, yeah right. that really exactly. resonated with me yeah so there's one there's one more question here that i think is really good mike lind asks how do you think gen z will deal with call out culture in the future it seems they're so willing to put themselves totally out there on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, everywhere, with cringe vids and Snapchats and fake Insta accounts and private messages. Everything's archived. Millennials and boomers seem to weaponize the slightest slip in any public servants or celebrities past. What is your sense of like the long game with Gen Z? I mean, to the extent that you can predict. Um, do you do they call each other out? Is that part of the practice? Yeah. Also, why are they so unafraid of exactly? These- I mean, when, how are we even going to navigate that in a future where a large number of people like were cosplaying as crusaders? Yeah, right. There's definitely going to be a president at some point who's going to have like a cosplaying past. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, one, they, they kind of don't care because they have no prospects, right? So it's like it's not going to be held against you in a job interview in the future because there's not going to be any jobs. The world is going to end from climate change. And, and the other thing is, I mean, we've seen plenty of examples of like you can be a rapist and be on the Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. So what what is your past really uh, hurts you in the future? Right. You know, well, that or you'll also like the only people who will run for office are the ones who are like psychopathic enough to just like know that they want to run for office from the time they're eight and just have a, you know, or rich enough to scrub the Internet. Right. Well, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, what does Old Town Road mean? Shouldn't we be talking? Shouldn't we mention that? I feel like that's yeah. the biggest yeah. TikTok development. recently. true. Yeah, I, I exclusively find out about music from TikTok now. Uh, Same, I have to admit, actually. Yeah, but, it's um, really good. I feel like it signals something culturally, that's for sure, because uh, it does. it is like a very broad swath of culture being kind of uh, addressed in one thing like that, so I don't know. Yeah. Right, but the the function of music is on TikTok, it's simply a soundtrack. I think this is something we were trying to navigate earlier. Well, I mean, right, is that it's, it's kind of divorced from... Not this one, though, because well, no. all the memes are so, like, 
Ye- e- ju- the e-girl juice turning into the but, e-girl juice. Yes yeah, it's yeah. a soundtrack. It's not a... I mean, the interesting thing to me about this, I mean, but Joshua, tell me if I'm getting this totally wrong, is like in a time when like you have st- mostly streaming music, and, and these songs are built to be mimetic. So the sticky hooks, they are isolated from the song, from the entire apparatus of the song, and then they're remapped with like the challenges are so dumb. I mean, the challenges don't matter. They're like fancy footwork or like mirroring or like some surprise or whatever. So these hooks become vehicles for some kind of social exchange. But how does it look from your point of view? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's like so so much good stuff to dive into. Yeah, I mean, TikTok is is just tremendously powerful mimics, right? Because you have like a kind of catchy dance, like an action that someone does with their body. And, you know, assuming that you, you have a body, you can do the dance also. It's easy to replicate. There's a very low cost or barrier to entry. And then it's a song that's also kind of like built to have this 15 second hook. It's, you know, all of these things are really reinforcing. Then you see it reproduced by a ton of different people. The one thing that I would mention about the issues that they've had with people not being compensated for um, like a dance that they popularized. In my observation, all of these the dances are references to dances that are available in Fortnite. So it's not just a viral dance that they can find off of YouTube, but it's a viral dance that Fortnite has found off of YouTube is then introduced into the new season of the game, monetized in that, you know, I don't know what it costs. And then the the users on TikTok reproduce it. I mean, I would really like just one kind of summary, just to really close this out. What are the practical things like we should be doing and understanding here, aside from, I guess, creating content, creating our own debunking content, having more left voices available, especially speaking to young teenagers, I guess? You know, in a practical practical sense, Josh, I guess my question is, what did you learn and what's the best things we can do and what should our average listener who hasn't read the piece, what practical advice do you have for them? Yeah, I think given the the full framework that we've laid out, I, I've kind of concluded that we're going to have to do this near future struggle on the platforms that we have. Uh, and we've kind of laid out the contextual and historical pressures that uh, push these kind of kids who have identified their generational grievance, they're kind of on an incline tilted towards the right. And I guess the, the prescription that I'm offering here is that we need to build a kind of left version of this alternate influencer network to address their grievances and bring them in before they get sucked down the right wing rabbit hole. And do you think maybe uh, free college is something also they're they're into as a policy or are they actually suspect of academia itself in universities? That's another question. Kind of a question, but related to this. I, th- I think uh, tactically for, for me, I, I mean, I'd, I'd certainly like to see that, but I don't think that the majority of people in the country go to college, regardless of whether it's free or, co- or cost money. Maybe those decisions are different once they, they don't have to pay for it. But there's, I think, more pressing concerns that will draw people in, like whether they themselves have experienced it or or a loved one. Most people have had some kind of like cancer or heart disease in their family that has sucked up all of their life savings. So that that's broadly appealing. We're paying record high percentages of our income towards rent. So no, rent would be second on that. And, uh, you know, free college is great, but, you know, message to the audience that you're talking to. Yeah. I mean, one thing you said yesterday or Friday, you were like, landlords have done more to radicalize people than maybe any other professional group. Um, and if we just had like rent that everyone could afford and healthcare that everyone could afford, you actually do a lot in stabilizing people, which right. oftentimes helps mitigate radicalization. Yeah. I mean, this is maybe, maybe an aside, but I'm I'm thinking of like the, the importance of political imagination and, you know, the, the kind of like very real existential threat of climate change and, uh, you know, how much of a time limit and how radical do we need to be? Say say we have that total utopia scenario, Sanders, Corbyn, Green New Deal, everything. And that's even that is not enough. I think that the only way we're going to get to that kind of even, even to make that achievable is if we think as broad as the insanely far-right guys do, right? When you ask Richard Spencer of, like, what is your policy proposal or how do you create the ethnostate, he'll say something like, well, we could do it here in Montana, we could do it in Canada, we could do it on an island, 
we could do it in space, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and so he doesn't have he doesn't literally have a plan to yeah. build a space station to make his fucking ethnostate or whatever. But setting your sights that far down the horizon, I think, gives people a utility and a, a narrative that they can buy into. Right. And that's where the LARP and the world building comes in. So maybe we have a left proposal, which is like, Yes, we've passed the precipice of catastrophic climate change, and we're going to have to retreat major cities from the ports or or kind of these low-lying areas. But that's also going to be the biggest infrastructure-building project and the greatest uh, financial boom that you know we could possibly hope for in some kind of like Keynesian spending jobs creation model. So if the the kind of like recovering the left vision of the future meant building an enormous metropolitan smart city in flyover country maybe that's the future that people could really get behind i don't i don't know i'm, I'm throwing things out but i'm yeah. i, I, I do that. want to address i think dan has brought up some very real concerns that that we should uh, be mindful of i mean maybe just even a new pla- i mean climate or nothing like you know and you like and have a little bit of a around the world unification over the fact that like this is the only thing that matters and in, in for people's lives in the earth right now in politics yeah maybe get i mean maybe make it attractive that this could be pe- a pan people can all agree that it's the biggest problem but that's not enough to unify people to to cuz like whatever actions are prescribed to prevent the worst of it are very radically different views possible there you know it's not just like we solve climate change and then it's better it's like it's just step, a debate about how we do, how we distribute step, resources. Man. Step by step, I, I do it, think that what you're like saying though about is like the, the best chance to do international solidarity, right? Right. right. Like it's really hard to build like the IWW one big union that spans all the <laughs> right. continents, right? Even if we can Skype each other all the time, like I I think you, need you know even if it's a long invasion. shot, climate change is the best bet that we have. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much. Cool. All right. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks okay. Good to see you. You too. <laughs> see you later. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Models Podcast. The episode and all music was edited and composed by myself, Lil Internet, and I was joined by New Models hosts Caroline Busta and Daniel Keller. And of course, a huge thank you to our returning guest, Joshua Citarella. His essay, Irony Politics and Gen Z, is available on our website, newmodels.io. Consider setting it as your homepage, and you can always send us tips or submissions at desk at newmodels.io. You can also join our community at Patreon to be part of the discussions on our Discord and listen to more New Models podcasts. Patreon.com slash New Models. Now, time for shoutouts. Thank you, Alex Von Bergen, Jacob Schillinger, Ben Rosamond, Luke Samuel Dial, Anan, Dis, Eric Palm, Amnesia Scanner, Yelena Christic, Eva Svenning, Catherine Chevalier, Alessio Ascari, Christina Travaglini, Alex Darola, Eric Lawler, Masha Chan, Jack Tarpey, Dennis Pohl, Woodbine, Dean Kissick, Maggie Clinton, Cade, Cody B, Alex Scrimger, Nick Cosmas, Mark JC, Mike Lind, at underscore caring, at exhumed, at pink Cadillac, at Tom, at Sarah, at American Rory 2003, at Will K, at Young Replicant, at T Desk, at Sick, at Tide, at Max, at Distant Calm, and at Pierce. And we want to say a huge congrats to New Models contributing editor Stephanie Wakefield and Glenn Dyer, who welcomed a new human being into the world this week. We also want to thank Kaleidoscope and Lafayette Anticipations for hosting us in Paris this past weekend. You can check out our interview with Amnesia Scanner in the latest issue of Kaleidoscope. See you next episode.